Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello there, Foo followers. Ben Johnson here, the host of the Kung Fu Movie Guide podcast, reminding you that if you would like to support this show, we have a donations link available. Any spare pennies you may have would be greatly received to help with the upkeep of this show, the website, the social media accounts, and so on. Simply head over to paypal.me forward slash Kung Fu Movie Guide to donate whatever you can. And a huge thank you to any listeners who have supported us over the years. You have our gratitude okay thank you and on with the show well if you're really so determined to have a fight then i'll oblige Hello there, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Foo followers around the world. Welcome to the Kung Fu Movie Guide podcast, episode 82. This is the third episode in our new season, season 7, and what a treat we have for Kung Fu Movie fans today. This is a special tribute show dedicated to the martial arts movie star Jimmy Wong Yu, who died this year on the 5th of April 2022 at the age of 79. He was a hugely influential figure in the world of Kung Fu movies and Hong Kong action cinema in general, and one of the biggest stars at the Shaw Brothers in the 1960s. So it would seem utterly inappropriate if we didn't recognise his great film career and look back at his life in some way on this podcast. So to discuss his colourful life and career, I have two wonderful guests on the show today. We have Sam Deegan a writer and film historian based in Philadelphia and a huge Kung Fu movie fan. She's done audio commentaries and contributed to releases from Arrow and 88 Films and Vinegar Syndrome. She's a presenter of the cult film podcast Twitch of the Death Nerve. She's covered Wong Yu on that show before and also contributed an audio commentary to the 88 Films release of the classic 1970 Wong Yu film Chinese Boxer. And I am also joined by Frank Zheng. Frank is an Asian cinema expert, a former marketing manager at Tai Seng, which at the time was the largest distributor of Hong Kong movies in the USA, based in San Francisco. Frank has also contributed lots to the world of audio commentaries in the research for this show. I heard Frank's commentary on the Eureka Entertainment release of the excellent 1971 Wong Yu film One-Armed Boxer. And what fun we had, me, Frank and Sam, delving into the life and times of Jimmy Wong Yu. We don't shy away from the more, shall we say, controversial aspects of his life on this show. So hopefully for new and old fans alike, you should find the next hour or so quite entertaining. That is all coming up 
on today's show. That's coming up shortly. But before we get into that, a quick reminder that if you are enjoying the new season so far, then the best thing you can do is to leave us a star rating with your podcast provider. It takes about two seconds to do it, and it really does help to raise the profile of this show. You can also tell your friends about it, donate to the PayPal accounts, you can write a review, whatever you can do to help spread the good word of the Kung Fu Movie Guide. Head over to KungFuMovieGuide.com to read the latest martial arts movie reviews. That's also where you can sign up to our newsletter and get the chance of winning some cool Kung Fu movie related prizes as part of our monthly competitions. You can also find all of our contact details there if you want to reach out and get in touch. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Kung Fu Movie Guide and we are also on Twitter at KF Movie Guide. And if you really want to go into a lot more detail then you can send me an email. The email address is hello at kungfumovieguide.com. Okay, it's time to talk Jimmy Wong Yu. When I was editing this one, I realized that despite this being a Kung Fu movie podcast, we haven't really done an episode like this yet where we look back over the life of one of the genre's biggest stars. So I do hope this encourages you to seek out and watch more of Wong Yu's great work. Uh, You can find a list of his films on our Jimmy Wong Yu profile page on our website, kungfumovieguide.com, and I'll be sure to add a link to that page in the podcast description plus a few reviews of some of my favorite Wong Yu movies and I will be back at the end of this conversation to say a few more words and also share some more links which might be of interest but until then here is my chat with Sam Deegan and Frank Jeng discussing the life of Jimmy Wong Yu. Should we do some introductions? Sam, do you want to just sort of introduce yourself and maybe talk a little bit about some of the, the work that you do and obviously being a fan of this this guy that we're, we're talking about today? Yeah, sure. So I am a writer. I do a lot of audio commentaries uh, for different companies like Arrow and 88 Films and, you know, Vinegar Syndrome and... I'm US based in Philadelphia and you know I sort of grew up loving Shaw Brothers and that's what led me to Wang Yu's work and you know it's just so wild and incredible I think it's hard not to just become obsessed with him once you yeah. start watching his films <laughs> Yeah absolutely thank you Sam and uh Frank Well you know um I Originally worked at Tai Seng Entertainment, which was, you know, the largest uh, distributor of Hong Kong programming uh, in the U.S. A few years ago, uh, I was approached by Eureka, to um, who was asking for permission to reprint some of the liner notes that I wrote for the Tai Seng Laserdisc releases. And then they asked me whether I'm interested in doing audio commentaries for some of the upcoming releases. And, you know, I, I did a few commentaries back in my Tai Sing days. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll try to do them again. <laughs> so I did a couple for Eureka and then they, I guess they liked it. And then they started asking me to do more. And then other labels started approaching me, you know, Arrow and um, AD Films. And so that's how I kind of had this little, you know, renaissance in terms of my 
involvement with you know Hong Kong cinema or Asian action cinema in general. The person we're talking about today then, so let's get this cleared up first of all. I've always said Jimmy Wang Yu, I've heard Jimmy Wong Yu, I don't know. Uh, Frank, is there a correct pronunciation or uh, what? Well, it depends what? on how you want to pronounce it in uh, Cantonese or Mandarin. Cantonese yeah. you know, would be Wong Yu, whereas in Mandarin it would be Wang Yu. Well, you know, he's he's from Taiwan. Oh, well, he's actually from Shanghai. Uh, so I think we should go by the Mandarin Mandarin pronunciation, which of course should be Wang Yu. There we go. We've uh, we've got definitive uh, answer on that. Then, <laughs> so yeah. Jimmy Wang Yu died this year, fifth of April, twenty twenty two. He died at the age of seventy nine. I'm curious, what are your earliest memories? Some of your favorite memories? Maybe the first time that you remember seeing him. Uh, on screen sam can i can i start with you definitely master of the flying guillotine which is one of those you know i think there are certain films especially if you're somebody who loves cult movies or loves a certain genre like action or horror there are certain films that i think will just are so you know new to you that they'll just stick in your brain forever and i want to say i was 13 or 14 and saw a really bad bootleg of that but it's just so incredible that i was like okay i need to find out every who all of these people are and what else have they done frank what's your earliest jimmy wong you memories well definitely when i'm sourceman um yeah i remember watching it on i think on television back when i was you know growing up in hong kong um they show clips of that film and I remember seeing it. Like, wow, and some, <laughs> this guy is fighting with one arm. <laughs> I thought that was a, that was pretty fascinating. Yeah. And and then later on, of course, I found out more about his work in like Master Fine Guillotine, Chinese Boxer, and um, you know, and of course, One Arm Boxer. And that's how you know I found out more about him. But I was actually more familiar with his triad background back then, more than mm-hmm. his film background, because you know his. Uh, all, all his, you know, like all his incidents involving the triad was pretty much news. You know, like like they were, you know, always talk about him and his uh, problem, you know, with other people and his involvement in triads in the news. So, so in some ways, I I knew more about his his real life controversies than actually more yeah. of his, you know, like film career. Of course, his, you know, his um, marital issues too. You know, he has yeah. various girlfriends and. Of course, he's you know fighting the street. So, so in other words, I kind of like was more familiar with his personal, private life than his, you know, filmography. And only later on, when I started watching more of his films, then I realized like the work that he did in films and all that. When you talk about kung fu movies, people always you know they will immediately think of Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan, Donnie Yen, probably as well, Jet Li. You know, they're the sort of the big names that really jump out. Jimmy Wong Yu doesn't necessarily immediately spring to mind. If you know your kung fu movies, then you you will you'll be aware of his work. I'm just wondering, you know, now that he's passed, what sort of legacy do you think he actually does leave behind? Yeah, it's a frustrating question, and I I agree with you that I think especially English language audiences, like in the U.S. and the U.K., tend to gravitate towards those bigger name personalities like Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee. But I think a lot of the work that Blu-ray companies like 88 Films and Eureka are doing 
will hopefully introduce more action movie fans to him because I think he's such a great performer, but to me, a lot of the important, like the importance of his legacy, it's not just, you know, his starring roles, but the way that he kind of made Chinese boxer and left Shaw brothers and wanted to do some innovative directing work and wanted to do different things with the camera and just has this off screen legacy as well. So, you know, I think, it's been hard for people to find a lot of these films, especially in decent quality. So I'm hoping that all of these new releases will change that because his legacy is important, but I do think he is, unless you're somebody who's already really well-versed in Asian cinema and martial arts cinema, I do think he does kind of get overlooked. Yeah. yeah. I, I agree. I mean, he tend to be overshadowed by you know Bruce Lee. Uh, he, you know, he was, one of the stars that, you know, he was on the cups of popularity with his, especially with Unboxer when it was released in, in the U.S. as a you know Chinese professional. But but then Bruce Lee came along, you know, and and kind of you know and and Bruce Lee star, star you know shone so bright that he kind of really overshadowed, you know, Jimmy Jimmy Wang Yu um, in terms of his rec- recognition overseas. And also, um, I like like Sam said, you know. Um, Many of his films were not in very good condition, mm. and and I in in many ways he kind of reminded me of Angela Mao. You know, Angela Mao also had this yeah. body of film work where a lot of the newer generations of martial art film lovers have not never seen, never seen, and never even aware that she has made so many movies. Apart from her, you know, like most of the people knew her from Enter the Dragon because of her, you know, her that significant cameo she had, but. Little do people know that she's, you know, she has such classic films like in Hapkido, Lady Whirlwind, when Taekwondo Strikes. And the reason was because the, you know, the condition of those films are so, so bad. You know, the, the preservation of them is so horrible. So hopefully, again, with the recent you know, remastering efforts by, you know, like Eureka and Arrow in 88 film, there, uh, you know, both Jimmy Wang Yi and Angela Miles, you know, name would be more prominent now and people would know more about their body of work. Born in Shanghai, uh, 28th of March 1943. I've done a bit of reading, I've tried to do some research here into his early years and growing up in Shanghai, but um, you know, what what do we know about his, his early life? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a bit of a challenge when you're trying to do research on somebody who, as we've said, is not as big of a figure internationally as they should be. And you don't speak Mandarin or Cantonese or don't read them in this case. And so I've been able to find out, I think, what probably a lot of his fans know at this point, just that, you know, he has this really fascinating background in swimming and different kinds of athletics and things that I would associate with his role in action movies later, like being really into car racing and learning street fighting. And I think it it comes through so clearly in his roles versus having the kind of like Chinese opera school background 
that some of the other bigger stars do. It just makes his fighting style seem more realistic. He's referred to as a Taiwanese star in the sense that, obviously, I know he eventually settled and relocated to Taiwan. Uh, but he was born in Shanghai. He's he's a, a Chinese, mainland Chinese star. So, Frank, what do you know about his early life and his, his upbringing? Well, yeah, like you say, he was born in Shanghai. His real name was actually Wang Jingquan. You know, not Wang Yu, but actually you know, Wang Jingquan's real name. And his father was a businessman in Shanghai. And so he actually had a pretty well, you know, well-off background. You know, his family well-off. They're not poor. You know, they, they actually have some money. But he was like a rebel from the very start. You know, he was, he was growing up as a kid. He's always been like the troublemaker. He likes martial arts, but he always get into fights. You know, always got into fights with other kids. So he actually kind of became this sort of like a well-known little bully, you know, <laughs> in the streets of Shanghai. And and so his dad sent him to the uh, Shanghai Sports Academy to, in hopes of, you know, getting him off the, you know, off the uh, trail to become this gangster or what have you, or, or just this, you know, kid who's constantly getting into trouble. And because he's so active, he's so, you know, he's so energetic. So once he got into the, Shanghai Sports Academy, he started learning, you know, martial arts and swimming. And that's how he, you know, became this guy with this pretty, you know, good physique, you know, muscular, you know, athletic physique. And and in 1961, and this was during the time when China is going through all these, you know, political turmoil, right? You have, you know, you have the so-called big leap forward in the 50s. And this, of course, is on the edge of the Cultural Revolution, uh, you know, in the '66, so so there's this trend of like uh, migration to the south, leaving you know, leaving basically the northern side, getting the south, and especially to Hong Kong. You know, similar to like my parents. My parents went to Hong Kong in the early '60s, and so it's kind of like a similar situation. And so he went with his parents' parents to Hong Kong in 1961. So that was like when he was around 16 or 17. And so that's why that's why he got to Hong Kong, even though he was originally from Shanghai. So he's in Hong Kong in the early 60s, and he's still into sports as a, as an athlete. As you say, he picked up martial arts as well as, as an interest. Do we know where this acting theatrical side of, of him ca- came from? Do we know any, any details around what would have sparked you know, an interest in, in the arts? So he went to Hong Kong. He went to the Zhuhai academy for you know tra- a school so it's kind of like a like a you know so a community college so to speak right and at that time this was the beginning of the uh, popularity in uh, martial arts films uh even though you know this is early 60 you already have those black and white you know cantonese films which of course they had martial arts films as part of the genre you have the Wong, the kwantakeng wong fei hong series you have you know, like films like buddha palm buddha's palm and at that time, uh, the Mandarin-speaking uh, martial art film weren't as popular yet. But uh, the Hong Kong film industry folk want to expand their, you know, their reputation. They want to expand their scale to Mandarin-speaking countries or places like Taiwan, uh, Southeast Asia, you know, like Malaysia, Singapore. They all speak, you know, um, Mandarin. And of course, eventually they want to go to China. And so they knew that to 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 achieve that, they have to start making uh, Mandarin-speaking 
martial art films. And so they start uh, like Shaw Brothers, uh, who at that time was already making films, you know, the Wong Mei musicals or drama and what have you. So they started uh, making martial arts speaking Mandarin films. They decided to like put ads in newspapers saying we're looking for Mandarin speaking uh, male actors or, or, or in athletes who can speak Mandarin. And so persuaded by his friend, uh, Wang Yu decided to go and, and apply for it. And because of his experience, because of his, you know, uh, knowledge in martial arts, and because he can speak, you know, Shanghainese, he can speak Cantonese. I mean, he learned Cantonese, like, you know, once he, once he went to Hong Kong, and he can speak Mandarin, of course. And because of his physique, you know, his athletic physique, he was actually, uh, you know, he, he kind of came ahead among more than 3,000 applicants that apply for, for this um, uh, position, uh, these, to be a male leading actor for Shaw Brother Mandarin speaking martial art film. And so Shaw Brother hired him. Have you ever seen the wonderful picture that supposedly is from one of his early auditions and it has him and Lole together looking like they're, you know, 20-year-old babies? <laughs> no, I haven't. No, I've not it's, seen that. It's great. I'll have to find it and, and send yeah. it to you. So Jimmy Wong Yu signs for Shaw Brothers in 1963. Shaw Brothers had a monopoly, didn't they, essentially, not just over Hong Kong cinema, but they were producing movies that were being shown, you know, across the Chinese diaspora, wasn't it? So Singapore, Taiwan as well. They were essentially, you know, the only <laughs> the only game in town. Yeah, and I think they had such at least to me, such a fascinating approach to thinking big, I, I guess you could say. Like they didn't it seemed like they weren't really all that interested in just making, you know, local films or films that appealed to just a Hong Kong audience, but went into it really early on with this idea of not only being able to spread their kind of film network through Southeast Asia, but also really early on seemed to be fixated on how to bring it to a more international audience and how to get into like European festivals. And so that kind of expansion and that idea of, you know, how can we find a successful formula that appeals to a lot of people seems to have been really important in those like mid 60s films where they were sort of trying to find their niche. Yeah. Yeah, because they want to dominate, basically, first, the Mandarin-speaking martial arts film market so that they can, you know, be like the leading distributor of these films in, you know, Mandarin-speaking countries, like, you know, Southeast Asia, Taiwan, and eventually China. I mean, China is probably, you know, of course, the Cultural Revolution kind of <laughs> ruined that plan. Yeah. Ruined that plan. <laughs> you know, remember that Sir Run Run Shaw was actually recruited to go back to Hong Kong and, you know, took over administration of the Shaw Brothers because his brother wasn't doing that well of a job. <laughs> and and because he is kind of like, you know, he's uh he's educated, he 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 he's aware of the Western, you know, like like he I mean he he admired Hollywood, you know. He loved the Hollywood system. He loved Hollywood film. So so to him he always wanted to make Shaw Brothers into the so called Dongfang Hollywood, you know, the East Hollywood, you know, the, the Hollywood of the East, so to speak. Mm. So so they always have this ambition of you know growing beyond just Hong Kong and first you know, first to the Southeast Asia, you know, Mandarin speaking country, and then of course to the rest of the world. I know who you are, you bastard. 
Your time has come. Then your son. So we've got a young Jimmy Wong Yu. He's 20 years old. He's just signed for Shaw Brothers. And he's getting roles as an actor. Sort of uh, a lot of early roles are kind of bit bit parts, aren't they? Extras, stunt work, that kind of thing. And he appears in a few movies, but it only really kicks off for him once he starts working with Chang Che. Yeah, that's how it seems. And I can't imagine that that was something that sat very well with him. That sort of like 64, 65 period where he was just in smaller roles. But his career did take off pretty quickly. And I think him having that really headstrong personality, like naturally being kind of cantankerous, like Frank was saying, (laughs) I think that's probably what helped propel him forward so quickly, but ultimately, you know, led to his break with them because he didn't want to be contained. Yeah. I mean, Tiger Boy was the role that made him, you know, really took off in the Shaw Brother, you know, why he was in Shaw Brothers. I mean, so in a way, you can say that yeah, Chang Che is kind of like his earliest mentor, yeah, and because yeah. he he kind of you know he was so outstanding in Tiger Boy, that that kind of really jump started his career, you know, as this one of the leading men for Shorebirds. So Tiger Boy is nineteen sixty six, and then of course the big movie that really establishes him as a you know it's probably Hong Kong's biggest you know action star of 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 the time is uh, One Armed Swordsman. So that's nineteen. 19- 67, directed by Chang Che. This is a wonderful film. What, um, you, you were saying, Frank, this is this was your earliest memory of seeing uh, Jimmy Wong Yu on, on screen then was, was One-Armed Swordsman. What, what do you think is so captivating and um, so great about this movie, which was a huge success, the first Hong Kong film to gross um, one million Hong Kong dollars at the box office? Well, for one thing, you know, people have never seen uh, a lead actor who can fight with one arm. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's that's start. You know, that's the main thing. And then also, uh, for uh, for me especially, it somehow reminded me a lot of Japanese films. Even though it's obviously yeah. a Chinese, you know, it's obviously a Chinese, a very Chinese wuxia film. And then of course, we knew that you know Wang Yi would would become a big fan of you know all those Chambara films. You know, the, the, the Kurosawa Yojimbo. You know, those those you know those, those samurai swords playing chambara films but it gave me a very distinctively japanese feel to it you know with with him being this one armed guy fighting and it just stood out you know it just it's just so different from your typical sword play film at that time where the lead actors doing the sword playing the sword fighting were not really martial artists and so mm-hmm. like the way they fought it was more like ballet you know and it's more like a stage almost you know, very theatrical in the way they fought with the sword. But with Wang Yi, you saw him using his sword, and not just because, he, I mean, in addition to him just fighting with an arm, you can you can sense that he's really fighting. It's, it's almost like this is a, this is a, it's almost like a really personal interpretation of a real martial artist that we grow, you know, like we all, you know, like, you know we kid, you know, kids like us in Hong Kong, we all grew up reading, you know, martial art novels by, you know, Kulong and, and you know, Louis Cha. And and to be able to see someone fighting like what we read in the martial arts novel, that was really kind of refreshing. It's yeah. almost like it's almost like kind of like a dream come true. It's like, oh yeah, you know, this is how it how it looked, you know, yeah. visually from how we imagine it while reading them the novels. Yeah, it's like the Marvel's Avengers of the of its time, isn't right. it? Really, in many in many <laughs> ways. Yeah. Sam, I'm curious, what do you make of I mean, because 
I mean, I love these films he made <laughs> with Chang Che. I think they're some of Chang Che's best films as well, um, those early Wuxia Shaw Brothers films. So The Assassin, Gone Swallow, Return of One-Armed Swordsman as well. It's just um, th- this this sort of streak that they had working together is really remarkable. But, I mean, do, do you agree with that? I know, you know, Chang Che's career is an interesting one, isn't it? So I'm just wondering, what, what are your thoughts on this this period of films? Oh, I think it's wonderful. I mean, I love Chang Che. He is an endlessly fascinating director, but I think definitely what Frank was saying is true for me as well in the sense that like, while I love the more operatic, balletic Wuja films, because I'm interested in that style of performance too, I definitely, growing up, wasn't as much. Like, it's something that I sort of had to learn to appreciate. And so seeing somebody with this more realistic fighting style who looks like he's really making an effort. Like, I think in a lot of the later Shaw Brothers movies, especially like those Venom Mob films, they make it look so effortless. And so there's like less at stake Whereas any time Wang Yu is fighting someone, it looks like like it could be the last fight, mm. which I think brings just such a different energy to some of those earlier Shaw Brothers films that he's in. But I also, out of all of those, for some reason, really have taken to Return of the One-Armed Swordsman, which, yeah. for anyone who hasn't seen it, has this whole incredible plot where all of these sort of super villains who want to be the, you know, the Lord of the martial world, they all have these great different gimmicks and, and it's so cartoonish and stylized. And then there's Wang Yu who's just brooding and he doesn't want to get back into fighting. And it just, I think kind of epitomizes what's great about his work with them. Well, yeah. And also I think it's his rebellious character that you can see through his characterization you know, he, he I think he's trying to bring his own personal experience into his acting, you know, him being this rebellious guy who's always going against the rules, going against the norm, you know. And also, um earlier I mentioned how like he you know, like his his work in one arm swordsman reminded, you know, like us who read martial arts novels, uh, of the novels that we that we read in the and the one you know, like like he you know him being this one armed guy is really almost like the same character in Louis Charles in the Condor Hero you know who who of course is also eventually had his arm cut off later on in the novel but but I think him being this rebellious character is really resonates for a lot of the young people growing up especially in Hong Kong at that time because remember this film came out in um, what 1967 that's during the height of the Hong Kong riots. Yeah, you know, if you know a little bit about the history of the riots, uh, and it started as this, this um, protest against you know the fee, you know, the, the fee, fare increase of the ferry, which the pro-communist people in Hong Kong, the pro-communist uh, underground folks in Hong Kong, kind of took advantage of it and stirred up emotions again, you know, uh, 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 among the all the young younger people who were like dischanted with you know, the low wages, the low living condition, and so he kind of represented that that those folks. The, yeah. the, the 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 Hong Kong youths that are against society, 
And I think that's the main reason for his overnight success. This is where you start seeing that concept of uh, Wong Yu as this lone hero who will, you know, is willing to put his own life on the line. And a lot of these films do end with a defiant uh, death scene, you know, the her- heroic death. But that the the traits that you then see throughout his career, they're all established during this time period, aren't they, Sam? Would you would, would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. And I think he, in a lot of these films, he seems to wind up not wanting to fight and being very sort of stubborn and resistant about not just engaging in battle like so many other martial artists in these films do for the glory of it or for some sort of name or renown. And he also, like things like in Chinese Boxer, he winds up fighting gangs who are greedy and who are just trying to exploit the local population, which I'm sure ties into what Frank was saying about the riots and the situation at the time where people were tired of feeling exploited. One man against ruthless killers trained in the arts of judo. Lethal kicks. Karate. Kendall. Don't miss the hammer of God. It's wild, explosive. It's coming soon, the hammer of God. Chinese boxer, 1970s. So this is his debut as writer, director and star. Now, there was controversy about this at the time because he was pitching this film. I believe this is correct. He'd been pitching this film for a while to Run Run Shaw and both Chang Che, and they both told him, stick to what you know. You know, you're a wuxia hero. You know, this is a tried and tested formula. You're a huge success, a huge star in Hong Kong. He was like, no, no, no. This is Chinese boxer, an empty hand kung fu movie. This is the direction that that we need to go in and and his stubbornness sort of won out in in the end um frank is that is that correct yes yeah i mean he you know by then he was watching other films from other places in countries like mainly japan from japan yeah and and he saw how you know he saw a lot of the japanese film incorporate you know like karate he realizes that you know, like in, in the japan for instance their so-called action film were not just about sword, you know. It's just not Chambara film. There's also hand-to-hand fighting. And also he uh he likes the fact that he I mean he likes the fact that there's this conflict, you know, the the idea of having like you know conflict between China and Japan. Uh, or, and then which of course led to the different kung, you know, like the different um the differences between the Chinese and Japanese Kung Fu. Yeah, and so he felt. Well, why can't we do this? Why can't we do a like a com- you know, combination film where we can showcase all these different style of fighting? And so, like you said, you know, both uh, Ron Ron Shaw and Shan Che were against that idea. You yeah, know, he told them to stick with swordplay. You know, swordplay. This is you good at swordplay. This is what you're famous for. This is what people like. Stick with it. But you know, he we let you know he was he was uh, persuasive. He we. He was persistent, so finally they were saying, "Okay, we'll let you make this one film, you know." But if this film, you know, if this film fell, you, you're going back to swordplay, and of course, yeah. this film became a hit. 
Yeah, huge, huge success. Completely transformed the industry, Sam, didn't it? Because there wasn't... This is credited as the first sort of empty-hand kung fu movie. This predates, you know, Bruce Lee by a good good year or so, doesn't it? So, you know, it really is... Jimmy Wong Yi really is the forerunner for the modern kung fu film, essentially. Yeah, and it's ironic because after the success of Chinese Boxer, Chang Che goes on to make more films that have this kind of realistic edgier street fighting feel to them and in a way i mean i know we were talking at the beginning of the episode about how it's frustrating that wang yu doesn't have the kind of reputation of people like bruce lee and jackie chan because you know as you pointed out he kind of kicked off this whole wave but i think in a way to me it sort of signifies and granted this would be a while coming but it sort of signifies the beginning of the end for Shaw Brothers because I think it really is symbolic of their resistance to embrace any kind of change to give their stars room for creativity which of course is what caused a lot of people to decamp and go to Golden Harvest where they were given more options to make different kinds of films that would appeal to younger audiences. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Well, there were several reasons for, for him leaving Shaw in such spectacular fashion <laughs> or, or such fiery fashion, which I'll go into detail later on. Well, for one thing is, Right before Chinese Boxer was released, uh, Sir Shaw, one of Sir Run Run Shaw's, uh, at that time, I guess you can call her a mistress, Mona Fong became one of the higher ups at Shaw. And so, and then of course they got, supposedly they got married. And so Shaw became this kind of like a husband and wife team. And they kind of took over the administration, which as a result led to one of their founding you know, person, uh, Raymond Chow, being ignored or put to the side. And so he decided to leave Shaw and start his own company, which, of course, we all know led to Golden Harvest. And so when he, when Raymond Chow left Shaw and started Golden Harvest, he started, you know, he brought his own, you know, he brought his own, you know, like a chef leaving a restaurant to go into another restaurant, right? So Raymond would not leave by himself. <laughs> He would bring his like own, you know, his close team of advisor or whatever you know, partners with him, and so he's trying to persuade Jimmy Wang Yi to go with him. And even though at that time Jimmy Wang Yi's uh, 
salary at Shaw. And remember, they're all, you know, they're all contract actors, right? So they're all, you know, these are all, you know, remember Shaw's like assembly line yeah. way of running things. So all the actors, you know, a contract that is signed to Shaw for like 10 years, what have you. And you know, they have this set salary. You know, so it's not like, not just, just because they're famous doesn't mean that their salary is going to be, you can see a huge leap for the next film and, and so forth. So anyway, so um, at that time, even though uh, Wang Yi was not satisfied with how stingy Shaw brother was to him or to his way of making films, but because his contract, he signed an eight year contract with Shaw. And so at that time, you know, his contract has, it has not expired. So, he, you know, technically he couldn't leave yet. So what mm-hmm. he did was he would sneak in. He's sneaking to the Shaw Brothers, I guess, file cabinets or his, their offices. Uh, and he, you know, took out like over 100 contracts and burned them all. <laughs> so he burned all those contracts. And... You know, he stole his own contract and to make sure that there's no trace left behind. So he burned like th- these are not his contract. These are the contract for mm. like a hundred more than hundreds of other actors. And so he just burned them all. And then he then he you know, left for Golden Harvest. And wow. um, <laughs> that's going out in style, going out in style. <laughs> so this was 1971. Right. So 1971. And because he left and went to Golden Harvest, uh, Shaw Brothers decided that they're not going to heavily promote the Chinese boxer, but then it still became like the number one box office, you know, yeah. uh, in, in Hong Kong at that year, which actually also led to the adventure making of King boxer. Yeah. Right. It was, it was a success of a Chinese boxer that led to uh Schauber making King boxer with low lay. And it's fascinating, isn't it, Sam, what happened with, uh, Chan Che, as you mentioned, because then when he loses his big star, he then, you know, has a new generation of actors who he then works with, you know, repeatedly, Ti Long and David Shang, Chen Quan Tai, and then Fu Sheng as well later. Um, so it's interesting, isn't it? But then he steps into Kung Fu movies as well. That's, that was the path that he then eventually took as a director as well. And my my favorite sort of back and forth spat throughout the seventies is the the rival one arm swordsman movies where you <laughs> yeah. have yeah. You know, you, <laughs> yes you have David Chang in one you have all of these like unofficial sequels except no wait it is the official sequel and. Yeah. It, I think that rivalry kind of led to this whole subgenre of one-arm warrior movies, which, yeah. like, to imagine that there would be not just one one-armed sword fighter or one-armed boxer movie, but, like, a dozen of them or probably 20 of them is just wild. Yeah. It's its own subgenre in it in itself. It's great. Um, so, so Jimmy Wang Yu. So this was part of the deal. Then wasn't it? Was that because he broke his contract with Shaw Brothers? The deal was that he could he just couldn't work in Hong Kong again. That was that was the punishment. Yeah, they they well they kind of settle. Um, initially, Run Run Shaw didn't want to do any actions towards Wang Yu, and finally is. Uh, realizing that they're losing talent left and right to you know, Golden Harvest, that they decided to uh, kind of cave in and use this excuse of, okay, we're going to raise salary of all the, our contractor actors. And so they 
re-sign, you know, uh, so the Shaw re-sign contracts with all of their actors under the wing, and then they find they then they file a lawsuit against um, Wang Yi for for breaking the contract. They finally settled. He actually only got uh, Wang Yi actually only got compensated for like five thousand Hong Kong dollars, which was like nothing. You know, we yeah. we talk about like say less than seven, you know, almost like seven hundred US. But then the the condition, of course, like you say, is he can never make films in Hong Kong again. Mm. You know, so which is mm. why he went over to Taiwan. Combine the dirty dozen with the magnificent seven, and you have the Chinese professionals, Kung Fu Beast. <laughs> Siamese devils, Tibetan tiger man, the invincible Yuga Khan, the one-armed boxer. A total of nine masters of the martial arts to tear the screen apart. Chinese professionals. In Taiwan, he was able to really flourish as a filmmaker and create the kind of films that he wanted to make, both as the star and the producer and and the director of these these movies as well. Sam, just looking at his 1970s work when he's working in Taiwan, there's some really great titles uh, throughout the 70s there. Um, are there any favorites of yours that that he works on during this this period? I mean, I think definitely Frank has mentioned a couple times the influence of Japanese cinema on his films. And I think when he's out from under Shaw Brothers' thumb, you start to see more and more of that. And something like Beach of the War Gods, which is from 73, is one of my personal favorites because it seems like he's kind of trying to do his own Akira Kurosawa movie. And like the sheer number of people on screen for most of the film, it like it's, I think the way that at least I think about some of the more egotistical actors who go off and want to direct their own movies. Sometimes it's okay. A lot of the time it's a disaster because they don't have directorial experience. But I think he proved pretty quickly, even with some of those shots in in his early films, like Chinese Boxer, where you get the sense that he's pushing for different kinds of shots and sort of sequences than you would see in a standard Shaw Brothers movie. You, yeah. you get the sense that he's learning on every single film and taking all of these chances that wind up being really fascinating. Like Sam said, especially for combining like his style with like the Japanese style continue, you know, the moment he went to go to Harvard, remember he made <laughs> Satsuichi versus one on swordsman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we should mention that as well because that's a, that's really early, just as he leaves Shaw Brothers. So that's 1971. He goes to Japan and makes that Zatoichi movie, reprising his most famous role of um, uh, one arm swordsman. But he was always looking for international collaborations as well, wasn't wasn't he? Yeah, and it's yeah. it's interesting because the first time I saw that film, I expected that maybe there would be more tension between 
the one-armed swordsman and Zatuichi, but it really is kind of a movie where Zatuichi has to rescue him. And <laughs> you get the sense that he just is so excited for this collaboration to be happening. And yeah. it's it's an amazing film. I mean, yeah. almost all of the Zatuichi movies in their own way are, but the dynamic is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Is there an alternate? There's two different endings to that movie, though, is there? Is <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But just like Godzilla versus King Kong, right? You, <laughs> yeah. you have to satisfy, you know, like both the, groups the audience. of audiences. You, you have an ending where Godzilla won, and then the other ending where King Kong won. So it's same, <laughs> yeah. same here. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Sam, you touched on this earlier. I think it's important, obviously, to stress that, you know, during the 70s, this is the period of Bruce Lee. And although Jimmy Wang Yu wasn't necessarily the most gifted of martial artists on screen, you do start to see other techniques creeping into his films, other gimmicks, whether it be really outlandish characters. I'm thinking immediately of one on Boxer and Long Fei's got those weird Dracula teeth not too sure why it's never explained which is something i love so that's what makes him such an interesting um uh, kung fu movie filmmaker isn't it is all these little tricks and things that he puts into his into his movies i think though he was also not reluctant to highlight the talents of other performers i mean something yeah. like man from hong kong has so many incredible martial arts in it i mean a very young Sammo Hung gets some yeah. crap beaten out of him in the first 20 mm-hmm. minutes of the movie. Yeah. Frank, what are the movies for you during this period? Because they do get more and more sort of nutty, don't they? I guess as the seventies go on, do you enjoy You enjoy this period of his work? Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like to me, like he's almost like everything but the kitchen sink and the kitchen <laughs> yeah. sink. Yeah. Like, especially in when I'm boxer where you have all these different fighters, right? You have the the, the, the llamas, you have karate, <laughs> you have judo, you, you you know, you have Indian, you have uh high kick boxing. It's almost like he's like like Sam said, he's he he's not afraid of giving like 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 giving the spotlight to other people in the film. His main idea I think has always been to entertain entertain the film goer. It's almost like I want you to get your money's worth by coming to see my film. I mean like one on boxer is just all these fights, especially in the middle sequence, you know, when you thought that oh this is gonna be over, the fight continues. So yeah. it's is I mean it's really entertaining. And and even though you do have some campy elements like you know, like Sam said, the the villain with the fangs and 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 the little comedy with the llamas, you know, uh, inflating llamas and stuff. But I think in the end he just wanted to, you know, entertain folks but in a way I think it's also it could be one of the reasons why he was overshadowed by Bruce Lee I think because mm. because uh, somehow there's these some of these elements in this film that somehow make the film less serious than it should be whereas you look at the Bruce Lee film like the big boss and Fist of Fury it's all serious right even the comedy is not not as uh, uh, outrageous or not as um, uh, like slapstick like yeah and so i think somehow it was because of bruce lee's seriousness in his films and also his his idea of he uh bruce lee kind of took this theme of this everyday folks going against you know the the bad guys going against other external forces you know one step further especially in fits of fury where you know he's stirring up all these 
you know, patriotism, patriotism with the Japanese and, and setting it in the era right before the Japanese invasion. I think that kind of struck a nerve among the audiences. Mm. And, and I think that's why somehow eventually Brucey's success kind of overshadowed you know, Wang Yu. Jimmy Wong Yu is the man from Hong Kong. A furious arsenal of martial arts. With his sights set on smashing organized crime. Nobody's safe from the man from Hong Kong. Curious as to how his star... Uh, did it continue to shine throughout the 70s? I mean, he, he would have then started facing pretty uh, stiff competition once Jackie Chan and the Kung Fu comedy trend started taking taking off in the um, late 70s. So I'm just curious as to how his fame was affected uh, after the move to, to Taiwan. Do we know much much about that? My understanding of his sort of public acclaim more public attention in the 70s is almost less about his films unless you're interested in you know like the drive-in market and grindhouse films and cult movies and became more about his public persona and you know being part of a triad and Mm -hmm. almost killing someone in a restaurant (laughs) yeah well i've heard this story do we know much about about this it, it almost reminds me of, you know, if you are familiar with the U.S. rap scene in the 90s where you have these sort of coastal rivalries, people getting into shootouts with each other, and it's like you hear about their name associated with the fight, but you don't get many details. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure Frank knows more about this, but my understanding is there's this huge fight at a restaurant Someone died. Jimmy Wang Wang Yu was there, but nobody could conclusively tie him to it enough to arrest him. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean there were actually several instances. So in 1976, you know, he he was drinking wine or drinking beer in, in this restaurant, and he wanted to bring one of the like one, I guess one of the girls who worked there that wanted wanted to take him take her out. And he felt like she wasn't giving him face. The another rival group, another rival triad group was there. And so that's how they started this huge fight in the in the corridor of the restaurant. And then he actually when you actually have to escape to Hong Kong to avoid being uh, investigated for the incident. In nineteen eighty he was, you know, he he I guess he's a, again he offended a gang leader at a casino. And so while he was dining at the restaurant, he was actually, you know, he was actually attacked by by the rival gang members and he almost died, you know. I mean, it's, you know, what a amazing, life. stories, what a life, I know. His, his life is like a movie. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to directly come out and say that someone needs to make a Jimmy Wong Yu film because I feel like <laughs> I could see that going very badly and be just being a terrible film, but... Yeah. It's just so cinematic. Also, this idea that that Frank mentioned of people giving or not giving each other face. I think when I first started watching Hong Kong movies, that is one of those concepts that is a little bit hard to translate. And so when you'd see it in subtitles, you're like, what? 
what about his yeah. face? <laughs> but it's it's so crucial to understanding any of those crime films. What's this story then about him helping Jackie Chan getting out of the low way contract? Well, he became good friends with Jackie. When Wang Yi left, go to Harvard in the mid seventies, he actually worked with, you know, cooperated with Lo Wei. They were doing independent films at that time. And then that's how he met Jackie you know, with the killer meteors and all, you know, the, all some of these films. So when uh, Jackie tried to get out of the contract with uh, Lo Wei, uh, you know, Wang Yi used his, you know, when he couldn't do it, Jimmy, you know, Jim Wang Yi kind of helped him get out of his contract Lo, Lo Wei so that Jackie can go to go to Harvard and to pay him back for his gratitude. Jackie, of course, starred in his film, you know, Fantasy Mission Fours and Island of Fire. So, you know, so that's kind of like his thank you to Jimmy for helping him out at that time. Yeah, yeah, he appeared in these sort of um, comeback films, I guess, throughout. Uh, you know, one in the eighties, yeah, Fancy Mission Force, which is a completely nuts film. But it's interesting, I guess, the power that he still had over the film industry that he could. You know, this is this is Jackie Chan in the eighties. You know, this is he's a huge star that he would still have the power to entice someone of uh, of uh, that stature to to make a movie with him. So that that says quite a lot as well, doesn't it, I guess? <laughs> well, in some ways, he also kind of needed Jack to help him boost his box office successes in the 80s yeah. as well. Because, you know, his star was already kind of, you know, gradually fading by that time. And so, you know, he, he was trying to, he was trying to really make a comeback you know, with with you know all these later seventies films, you know, particularly you know the um, Master of Fight and Guillotine. I mean, many people thought that you know Master of Fight and Guillotine was a huge hit, but not really, not in locally. You know, it was just to them, it was just another kind of like a you know a typical martial arts film. Yeah, and which I don't understand f- at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Taiwanese film tradition haven't hasn't do that well in in Hong Kong to begin with, so you know. They look at it as a Taiwanese film. They don't really look at it as a Hong Kong film. And then by the time he made the films in the late 70s and 80s, they weren't all doing well. There were various relationships. I know that he was married in uh, 1969, married the actor Jeanette Lin Choi, um, and they had three daughters uh, together. And then he married again in 1981, former flight attendant uh, Wang K. Chen. It was quite a public divorce, that one, I believe. That was all over the press when that was uh, uh, when that was happening. Is that is that correct? I guess, yes, yes. It was probably more of a news in Taiwan than in Hong Kong, I yeah. think. Because by then, you know, the, the, Hong, uh, like the Hong Kong industry or Hong Kong entertainment industry really hasn't been they really weren't paying that much attention to Wang Yi anymore. And yeah. by, by the late, we're talking about what the, I guess, well, well she, he divorced her second wife in 1999. So that's like late 90s. So by then, yeah, uh, people, the, the, the attention to Wang Yi has really faded in the Hong Kong industry. His first wife, uh, Lin Choi, is actually the younger sister of Kenneth Sang, who, of course, passed away recently. Uh, yes, oh, yes. I didn't Lin Choi is her that. stage name. Uh, oh, yeah, Lin Choi is a stage name, which is why it's not, you know, the last name was not Zhang, but she's actually the younger sister of Kenneth Tang. His daughter, um, Linda Wong, was a pretty, I mean, is a pretty popular singer in Hong Kong, though. Yeah. So so she was more, in a way, she's, you know, she's getting quite a little bit of attention in Hong Kong, but then 
it's not like people associate her with her being the daughter of Wang Yu. <laughs> yeah, she's a star in her in, in her own right. Right. He comes from beyond time. From beyond the outer limits of your imagination. He's the master of the flying guillotine. And he's ready to blow your mind. With more nerve-shattering special effects than you have ever seen before. The master of the flying guillotine. So he retires from the film industry 1997, but then he does make this comeback 2011. He appears in Wu Shao, known as also known as Dragon. He had a wonderful role in that film with um, uh, Donnie Yen. Small role in the the Guillotines, which uh, was a, a sort of remake, I guess, of Flying Guillotine, the old uh, Shaw Brothers movie, and Soul as well. So he makes uh, a brief comeback. Now, Sam, have you seen these these movies? And what do you think of him as an older actor coming back into the film industry? He's he's really he's really very good, isn't he? As a as an actor in these movies. Yeah. So I haven't seen Soul, but I think he he really just has that same sort of force of nature charisma, where they're just is something about the way that he carries himself as a fighter and just as an actor that yeah. I don't think really diminished at all. Frank, would you, would you agree with that? When he, when he made um, this sort of brief comeback in the two thousands, you know, it was, um, it was good. And it's great to just see him on screen again, is, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, of his last three films, I've only seen, you know, Wu Sha, of course. Yeah. Uh, the other two films are kind of hard to see in, outside of Taiwan. But yeah, I mean, he was great. He, he, you know, remember that he retired in 1997 and became this kind of like a businessman. And then, you know, 14 years later, he, he, you know, I guess he was either persuaded by Donnie or persuaded by the filmmakers to to take on this role, you know, in in in, in Wu Shai. He was fantastic, you know. Yeah. And I remember it was quite quite you know quite news at that time because the idea was you know people. Uh, at that time, the perception was, "Oh, Jimmy Wang is going to start in kung fu films again," you know, yeah, yeah because this you know, this first film of him coming back from retirement being a martial arts film. So there was actually kind of great anticipation in in him coming back to to this, you know, to the film industry, and of course, um, it earned him, you know, acting nomination at the Taiwan's Golden Horse Award for for his yeah. performance. Yeah. And it was great, wasn't it, around that time? Because I remember he was doing more events and he was being interviewed more. He became much more of a public, in the public realm again. Uh, and as you say, getting Lifetime Achievement Awards and, and that sort of thing. So that was really good to see him have a bit of a renaissance, I guess. Yeah, it's great that he was able to get that Lifetime Achievement Award a couple of years before he died. Because yeah. as we've been saying, you know, I don't really think he has gotten the credit that he's due, which is also why it's so so great to hear people like Jackie speaking about him more publicly now. Yeah, so we'll we'll touch on that. So he did suffer obviously from ill health towards the end of his life, had a mild stroke in 2011, this a second stroke in 2016, and then he wasn't seen in in public after after that returned to Taiwan and passed away this year, so died on 5th of April. Um, there was an announcement on Instagram by his eldest daughter, Linda Wong. Jackie Chan 
did write on social media and he said the contributions you've made to kung fu movies and the support and wisdom you've given to the younger generations will always be remembered in the industry and your movies will always remain in the hearts of your fans so how do you think wong you will be remembered because we're losing a lot of these these great talented guys from the 70s who worked during the kung fu movie boom and the and the heyday so sam what do you think um honestly i don't know if i can say how i think he'll be remembered but i hope that he'll be remembered as a real pioneer of the genre and something that i think is kind of fascinating is something i've heard more recently from cult movie fans who were maybe better versed in american and european films who have already sort of watched a lot of them are seem to be discovering not just japanese films and hong kong films but specifically some of those kung fu movies and they're just sort of blown away by them yeah. like i did a a couple months ago for my podcast we did an episode on master of the flying guillotine and the sheer number of people who hadn't seen it but watched it and were just blown away it was like yeah you need to watch wang yu's films yeah 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 <laughs> Frank, what's your thoughts? I mean, because obviously we know his controversies and his various, uh, you, know, you know, other activities maybe threaten to overshadow his his legacy in some ways. But um, how do you think he will be remembered? I think his his controversy is more uh, indented in the minds of uh, Asian, uh, you know, in Asia more than overseas, because yeah. obviously a lot of the Western uh, you know, fans of Wang Yi probably had no idea about his, you know, his uh, rather more, um, you know, colorful <laughs> private <laughs> <Yeah>. life. <laughs> but I think, you know, he he would be remembered for really two main things. You know, he was really the first martial arts or, you know, star. You know, he was yeah. the first, you know, before, you know he, he was the first, uh, really the first star in the martial arts genre, you know, before Bruce Lee, before Jackie Chan. And he was the first person who really, like Sam said, pioneered, you know, not just hand-to-hand combat films, you know, with Chinese boxer, but also the fact that um, he was the first one to really uh, combine different martial arts styles in, in his films. You know, before, you know, Chinese boxer was really just one style. Like most of the Hong Kong martial art film is always just like one style. You know, it's either sword play or, or you know, like mainly sword play, really, you know, at that time. But, you know, with Chinese boxing and then later on with the other films, he not only pioneered the hand-to-hand combat films, but also films that feature different martial arts styles, different, you know, not just from within China. I mean, like, we're not talking just about, say, Shaolin versus Wu Tang, or you know, or, or um, different you know schools of kung fu, but also different countries. You know, like you know, yeah. style from different countries. Karate versus judo versus Muay Thai. So yeah, he he would be remembered for those two main things. If people are looking for an introduction to his work, uh, Sam, what are the movies they should be jumping into first of all? If they just want to do a you know intro into into Wong Yu's filmography. Um, I guess my couple would be One-Armed Swordsman, Chinese Boxer, Master of the Flying Guillotine, and Man from Hong Kong. Yeah. Those would be my same choices as well. Yeah. Very good. And I think the Man from Hong Kong is really, I mean, I think people, it is worth digging out. It's worth finding that film and watching it because that was, you know, 
you can see that that's how like he's trying to be promoted as kind of like the James Bond of Asia or the Chinese <laughs> James yeah. Bond. It's almost like their way of trying to make him as big as Bruce Lee. Yeah. To or to make Well, that was was that meant that was meant to be a Bruce it meant Lee. Meant to be for Bruce Lee, yes. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. And all, yeah, it's kind of like their way to making making make up for him being overshadowed by Bruce Lee and like you said, ironically that film was originally meant for Bruce Lee. Yeah. And but to me it was it was I mean it's a it's a pretty it's an ex- excellent film you know but it's yeah. also I think one of the most fascinating entities in filmography is the fact that you know you have him as this kind of like a Asia James Bond guy uh, doing <laughs> yeah. doing his acting chops and also fighting with some of the wildest like Bond parallel sex scenes that you will find <laughs> anywhere. <Yeah. laughs> And and that theme song, yeah, <laughs> yeah, great, yes. great song, Sky High, right? I think Sky High, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for for doing this. This has been an absolute treat to to talk with you today about uh, Jimmy Wong. You, you have a good rest of the thanks. day. Thanks, man. Thank yeah, you. thank you. Have Bye. a good night. Bye. There we go, Kung Fu movie fans. I do hope you enjoyed listening to that. That was me and Sam Deegan and Frank Jeng. Remembering the late Jimmy Wong Yu, who died in April of this year, 2022, at the age of 79. What an incredible life. I'm sure you will agree. What a great legacy of Kung Fu movies that he does leave behind. Sam did email me that photo after the call. It's a glorious black and white Shaw Brothers publicity shot featuring Wong Yu and Lole and Cheng Liu just looking so young and looking like absolute studs. I will be sure to share it over our social media channels and also on the page for this episode of the show on our website. One area of Wong Yu's life that we didn't cover here is the often told rumour that he was in the army prior to starting his film career. I think I've read that on pretty much every English language bio that I've could find of him on the internet and we didn't cover it here because we're pretty sure that that actually isn't true but if you do know otherwise then do send me an email by the way hello at kungfumovieguide.com sam asked frank after this call over email about Wong Yu's time in the army and Frank said that it did sound like hearsay since he was supposedly in the Taiwanese army and not the mainland Chinese army which is the PLA Frank writes I don't believe Wong Yu was in Taiwan before he went to Hong Kong from Shanghai not that I know of anyway so there you go another myth busted (laughs) and uh As we discovered on this episode, there are many myths that do surround the life of Jimmy Wong Yu, so it is hard to know sometimes what is true and what is simply rumour. Anyway, all the rumours do still add to the colourful portrait of the man. A quick note also on alternate titles. You will have heard the American trailers of Wong Yu's films during that conversation. Now, the American names for kung fu movies in the 1970s were always so much more exciting. Uh, So, The Chinese Professionals is the American title for One-Armed Boxer. It sounds like that's probably a riff on the 1966 Western The Professionals. Uh, starring Burt Lancaster and Lee Marvin. And you heard a trailer for The Hammer of God. That's an extraordinary alternate title for 
the film Chinese Boxer. For more detail on those triad stories that Frank mentioned, I'll drop in a link to a very insightful article that I read on the blog Cool Ass Cinema. Uh, It's a very good blog. That This article does shed a little bit more light on that aspect of Wong Yu's story. I will also throw in some musical links that were mentioned in that conversation. The theme for the 1975 Wong Yu movie, The Man from Hong Kong, which we mentioned at the end there. That was a Hong Kong, Australia co-production. It also starred George Lazenby. Do go and check it out if you haven't seen The Man from Hong Kong. The theme song is called Sky High and it's by the band Jigsaw. Go and check out that video of that song with a singing drummer. Don't see many singing drummers anymore. Uh, It's always good to see. And for me, nothing screams 1970s kung fu movie more than the Big Boss theme by the Peter Thomas Sound Orchestra. You heard a little bit of that tune over the US trailer for the Chinese Professionals, aka One-Armed Boxer. So I've just added a link to that full track as well in the description. You can read our profile on Jimmy Wong Yu, plus many reviews of his movies on our website, kungfumovieguide.com. Sam Deegan is on Instagram and Twitter, at Sam Deegan. She also has a Patreon account. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Sam Deegan. And do check out her podcast, Twitch of the Death Nerve, available wherever you get your podcasts. Frank Jeng is also on Instagram, at Frank Jeng. Both Frank and Sam are doing wonderful work in championing these classic kung fu movies across many gloriously remastered Blu-rays around the world, so please do pick up your copies as and when they land. These companies are doing great work in restoring classic kung fu movies, and they're finally being shown the love, care, and attention that they deserve. So, hats off to the likes of Eureka Entertainment and 88 Films and Arrow Films and Vinegar Syndrome and all the other companies out there who are doing a sterling job. Finally, all it remains for me to say is a huge thank you to Sam and Frank for joining me on this episode and a huge thank you, as always, to you, the loyal Foo follower who has listened to this episode all the way to the very end. Thank you so much. I will be back in two weeks' time with another brand new episode of the show. But until then, please do take care, stay safe, be well, and I will speak to you all again very soon on the Kung Fu Movie Guide podcast. Bye for now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.